Um, today's message, um, we're going to go through a lot of Bible today. Okay, We're going to go through a lot of Bible. So I really want to encourage you to grab a piece of paper and I want you to take notes. Because I actually believe the message that I'm going to preach today is the most important topic I have ever preached on in 12 years of ministry. Now, I'm sitting there, and I just really set myself up for emails on Monday. So, yeah, that really wasn't all that good after all, you know, Kevin. But the topic that we are going to be tackling today as we conclude our series, What Would Jesus Undo?, is the most important topic I have ever, ever preached on. Set the bar real high. So take notes because I want you to see from the scriptures today that this is not Pastor Kevin's opinion. This is what the Bible teaches. I want you to see it. I want you to meditate on it. I want you to read it. I want you to wrestle with it. The most important topic we're going to cover today. Before I dive into it, I wanted to give a little bit of an update on how things are going with our merger with the Arabic congregation. For those of you who don't know, we've had an Arabic-speaking church that's been using our building here for the last five years. Um, The problem that they have been experiencing is they're an amazing church outreaching into the community, reaching people from a Muslim background, reaching new Canadian Syrian refugees. But a lot of the ethnic-speaking churches in Canada right now are struggling because they do a great job of reaching first-generation people. But then once their kids become Canadian... (laughs) They don't want to go to Chinese church or Filipino church or Arabic church or anything. They want to go to Canadian church. And so these churches are really struggling to reach and keep the next generation. And they kind of got to the point in their leadership where it's either they're going to close their doors and that ministry is going to stop, or we're going to fully embrace them and we're going to create one church, one leadership, one vision, one mission, two languages. And that's what we've been working on for the last, uh, since October. We, starting on January the 6th, there will be two worship services happening in this building at the same time at 11 o'clock. So for those of you here who attend the 11 o'clock service, this is going to impact you the most. It's going to get crazy around here. It's going to be messy. It's going to be complicated. And we're going to figure this out in grace and love and learn how to do this together, how to do two worship services at the same time, one in English and one in Arabic. And that way we're dismissing the kids at the same time, one kid's program in English to offer to these families, one youth ministry to reach out to the teenagers as well. So we're really excited about this. You need to make a New Year's resolution, as those of you who attend the 11 o'clock service. I don't ask for a lot. Okay, maybe I do. (laughs) I don't ask for much as your pastor. Your New Year's resolution must be show up on time. Because it's going to be nuts in here. You're not going to be able to come in through the back door because they're going to be worshiping in that room. You're not going to be able to get a coffee. We're going to close the cafe early. So if you've missed your coffee, come to the service cranky, okay? (laughs) I'm going to make sure I've had mine. So there's a lot of things that we're going to wrestle through, figure out, learn together. Um, But you, especially you at the 11 o'clock service, is going to be even more important to kind of make that New Year's resolution saying we're going to show up to church on time because doors are going to be different and, and things like that. And I'm going to give more updates as we get closer to January the 6th. One of the things that's just been really exciting, just in a way of update, is just the heart of both of these two churches coming together as one church. We are not seeing this as, hey, we're the big successful ministry coming to help this little church. That's not the attitude at all. We're really seeing this as one family coming together. Where we are strong in our ministry, it's going to be a blessing to them. But guess what? There are areas where they are way stronger in ministry than we are especially on the topic of evangelism. I have never seen a group of people who are able to share their love of Jesus to a culture that is incredibly hostile to Christianity. And they go into these places bringing the love of Jesus in ways that we don't. So we really see this as coming together, their strength, our strength, one church, one family, as we continue to live out the mission of being a vibrant, growing Christian community engaged in reaching 10,000 people with the gospel. 
We're in the process of figuring out finances. They're going to be shutting down as a standalone nonprofit. Their members are in the process of becoming members of Greenbelt. Their giving is come January 1st is going to transfer over to here. Their elders, we're going to all affirm them together. It's going to be one elders team, one elders team, one staff team, one deacons team, one leadership team, all come together from the two churches. Uh, and it's just been really exciting. I've started attending their services every Sunday uh, afternoon just so they can get to know me because I am becoming their senior pastor. They will have a part-time associate pastor overseeing the Arabic ministry, a guy named Freddie. I meet with him every week. Phenomenal guy, huge heart for people, great guy. You're going to love him. And um, and it's amazing. So I, show, I go to their services every Sunday afternoon. It's in Arabic. <laughs> Last week it was in Egyptian. I didn't know there was a difference between Egyptian and Arabic and Lebanese at all. I'm, I'm going to say it sounds the same to me. Can I say that? That's, it just does. And you know, and it's not like they sing our songs translated. They sing their songs with their music style. So I usually sit over there and I just clap and I hum. And then every once in a while they go, Pastor, we're saying holy. Okay, cool. And I just say holy, holy, and I just try to follow along. And then the preacher gets up and shoom, goes way over my head, but I get into my Bible and worship with them. And it's just been such a spirit of unity. So I'm really excited about it. But please be praying for this. This is a big deal. Um, there are no, um, I don't know of too many experts in church mergers. There aren't any books that I'm following to sit there and how do we do this in grace and love. We are truly just being obedient to God and seeking him in every step of the way. So we really covet your prayers as we do this together because we do believe together we're going to be stronger and we're going to really live out the vision that God has put on all of our hearts. So it's just really an exciting time. So with that said, we are going to dive into the last message in our series, What Would Jesus Undo? We spent 10 weeks talking and looking at the ministry of Jesus and how he has come to undo a lot of stuff in our lives. And as we've been looking at the ministry of Jesus, I, I want to do a little bit of audience participation right now. Okay, and Don't worry, it's nothing embarrassing, I promise. But if you think of the ministry of Jesus, all the teaching, all the miracles, all the different things he has done, what is one thing that you wish you could witness personally. Like if time travel was possible without completely disrupting the space-time continuum, I know that's Star Trek, not Star Wars, but we can go there sometimes, okay? But if you could travel in time and see one thing that Jesus did, what would you like to see? Woodstock. Woodstock. Jesus at Woodstock? Kicking it at Woodstock? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. (laughs) Walking on water. Love to see Jesus kick Peter out of the boat to walk on water. Not me, but it'd be great to see Jesus kick Peter out of the boat to walk on water. Yeah, that'd be cool to see. What else? The transfiguration, being up there on the mountainside when Jesus reveals himself in the full glory of God. To so just a couple of other witnesses. To be the third witness would be pretty cool. What else? Conversations with the Pharisees, watching Jesus kicking it, okay? Because he had his nicest words to say to the Pharisees, yeah. The road to Emmaus, when the risen Christ revealed himself, yeah. Cool, in the first service, somebody said, I want to be there when Jesus turned water into wine. (laughs) It was someone on our leadership team, exactly. See, everybody wants to party with Jesus, uh, because Jesus makes... The best wine. And if your theology kind of makes you conclude that wine had no alcohol, read your Bible. (laughs) I'm just saying. If your theology is the best wine has no alcohol, actually read your Bible. (laughs) Look at what it says. Study it in the Greek. It was the best wine. Everyone wants to party with Jesus. (laughs) Well, the story that we're going to look at today from Luke chapter 4 is my story. Okay, not my story, but it's the one I wish I could see. The one ministry, the one teaching of Jesus. This is the one that I so wish I could have been here for that, to see it. Now, just to set up a little bit of context, I just want to explain to you a little bit of where we're at in Luke's gospel so you can really grasp what's going on in the text that we're going to look at. Luke chapter 4 takes place very early in the ministry of Jesus. 
if you just turn your Bible back a couple of pages, the first two pages is the Christmas story. And we're going to look at that starting next week. We're going to be celebrating Advent, looking at the hope, joy, peace, and love that we have in Christ and that we are reminded of over this Christmas season. So it's the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, Jesus being presented at the temple, things like that. And then it gets into the baptism of Jesus. So you had John the Baptist who was you know, out in the wilderness at the Jordan River telling people to repent, turn from their sins, be baptized. John's kind of paving the way that one is coming who's even greater than him. And Jesus shows up and is baptized by John in the Jordan River. And it's a beautiful picture of the Trinity coming together, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all in one moment. And then directly after that, Jesus is brought out by the Spirit of God into the wilderness, into the desert, where he doesn't eat anything for 40 days, and he is tempted by Satan for 40 days. And then he leaves the wilderness, and then starting in verse 14 is where we're going to pick up. So again, very early in the ministry of Jesus. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee. So Galilee is kind of a region. You can almost think of it like a province. Returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him, and they were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. And then I'm going to skip down to verse 28, where it says, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd, and went on his way. If there is one story in the ministry of Jesus that I so wish I could have been there to witness, it's this one. You see, there's some pretty amazing things happening here in Luke chapter 4. And in order to fully grasp what's going on, I just want us to focus a little bit on a couple of the words that are setting this up. So the first thing that we need to look at is right at the beginning of this in verse um, 14 and 15. Again, Jesus is baptized. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days. He returns to Galilee, the region of Galilee, and then he ends up in Nazareth. In Nazareth. That entire journey, if you look, how many of you have got a map in the back of your Bible? A couple of people. Okay, you need to get a good study Bible. If you get the good study Bible, then you get all the maps. We don't look at them anyways, and so I love the maps. It's kind of like, for me, it's kind of like pictures. I can concentrate a little bit better when I've got pictures in my book. That's my comic book upbringing, okay? So when I've got some pictures, it helps me see the story better. I actually use a software called Logos on my computer, and it's got 800 books all cross-indexed and all that. And so I can bring up a map of, the, of Galilee in the region and say, I want to learn about Jesus being rejected. And it brings up this interactive map, and I just hover my mouse over it, and the Bible verses pop up. It's like just so designed for a guy with ADHD like me. And I could just read all the key texts and study it and cross-reference. I love this software. It's so good. But when you look at it on the map... 
in this short period of time, from baptism to temptation to return to the Galilee region to find his way to Nazareth, we're talking well over 110 kilometers on foot over a long period of time. The text doesn't really give us the sense of how long this is. It sounds like it's an hour later. This is days, weeks, maybe even months later, depending on the scholar that you follow. And in that journey of 110, 120-odd kilometers, Jesus is going from town to town, teaching people about the kingdom of God. As you study the other Gospels and piece the story together, you see that Jesus is performing miracles all over the place before he arrives to Nazareth. And then this is so important for all of us to see, and I think we miss this so often. It's in verse 15. It says, Jesus was going throughout the countryside. The news about him spread. So his reputation is going viral. And then he taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Praised him. In the Greek, the word praised is the word doxaxo. D-O-X-A-Z-O. Doxaxo. And it means to glorify. What's interesting about the choice of the Greek word here that Luke is using is this term, dozaxu, is only used in reference to the praise and giving glory to God. The only way that this word is used, the praise and glory to God. They're praising him, Jesus, as God, early on in his ministry. See, so often we think the divinity of Jesus only came later. That Jesus did ministry, did ministry, did ministry, and then started to reveal his divinity. We live in a culture today that wants to completely remove the divinity of Jesus. He's a good moral man. He's a rabbi. He's a good teacher. He's a good spiritual counselor, whatever the term may be. Problem is, the text doesn't allow us to go there. Right from the beginning of coming out of the wilderness, in the power of the Spirit, people begin to praise and glorify Him as God. This is important. Because now, Jesus, with this reputation that He is developing in the countryside goes back home. He goes to his hometown of Nazareth where he was raised and he does something that the Bible says is the next thing we have to really look at is he does something that it says here in verse 16 was his custom. Jesus' custom, Jesus' tradition growing up was to go to synagogue on Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, where the people of Israel were commanded to keep the Sabbath day holy, Jesus went to synagogue. Now, again, some people might say, well, what did Jesus do at synagogue? Well, thankfully, there's some Jewish writing and Jewish historians that have mapped this out for us. We actually know what they used to do back then. They would get together, there would be a synagogue kind of in every kind of local area, whether in a town, the countryside, in the region, they'd have these synagogues. And in order to have, let's just for lack of words call it, a church service, they'd get together. They had to have a minimum of 10 men for it to be official. Now, why it had to be 10 men, I don't know, but it's just with their tradition. For it to be a legal, valid church service, a worship service, that to have 10 men and however many other people. And they would start their time together of worship reading something called the Shema. That's a fancy Hebrew word, but you know what this is. Because it's the greatest commandment that Jesus taught. Every Sabbath, it was the custom of Jesus to begin his worship Reading the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart 
and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit down at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your forehead. Kind of imagine a little Christian bracelet. Instead, we got Christian headbands here. Write them down on your door frames, the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Every Sabbath, this is how they would begin their time of worship, of reading these words. And then someone would read from the book of the law. That's the first five books of your Old Testament written by Moses. They would read a passage from the law. And then someone else would read a second part of Scripture. They would read from one of the prophets. One of the major prophets, one of the minor prophets. You know, they go through one of the passages from the book of the prophets from the Old Testament. And then someone would get up and explain to the people in their language what was just read. You see, the scriptures that they had on their scrolls were all written in Hebrew. And in Jesus' town growing up, Jesus didn't speak Hebrew. Jesus spoke Aramaic. So it would have to be translated by someone. They would do an expository sermon to explain the word of God to people so that it would be impressed on their hearts, would change how they live, would impact their families, and would be visible because you'd have it on your hands and your forehead and your doorposts. And that was the custom of Jesus. See, when people say, oh, the way we do church isn't any good, we should modernize it and we should do it different. What we do is pretty similar to what Jesus did. This goes back thousands and thousands of years, this tradition, this custom of explaining the word of God to people in their language so that they could be transformed by it. Like this setting that's being pictured here would be something that for the people in Jesus' town would have been very comfortable. I'm used to synagogue working a certain way. When I go to the synagogue on Sabbath, I can expect some old guy with curly ringlets and a robe on to read the Shema. I would expect another one of the men is going to read one of the books of the law. Another one of the men is going to read from the prophets. Someone else is going to explain it to me in my language. And then we'll have a benediction and we'll leave. I can predict everything that is going to happen. It's comfortable. It's familiar. It's the tradition. And we love it. Then Jesus shows up following his custom, following his tradition and reads from one of the prophets, which would have been done every single week. And he reads from the book of Isaiah, which shows the work that the Messiah will do. You see, the people have been waiting about 600 years since the book of Isaiah was written to the time of Jesus. They're waiting and waiting and waiting for this prophecy to come true. And Jesus reads it, sits down, And says, before the sermon starts, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I would have loved to be there. To witness that. See, and when we talk about this story normally as modern day Christians, we normally jump right to verse 28, like I did in the reading. And we go right into, everybody's mad and hates Jesus. We jump into, there's the, prophet, the, the promise of Isaiah. Jesus says it's fulfilled. Everybody's mad at him. Not where the text goes. Look at verse 22. It says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. You see, Jesus had developed this reputation in the countryside. People have begun to glorify him, to praise him as divine. He comes home. 
He leads the people in their synagogue service, reads the promise of this scroll. Today this has been fulfilled. This, this declaration is in line with the reputation they've heard about Jesus. They haven't seen anything yet. They've only heard about it. And then someone, and this is the, re, the real reason why I really wish I was here. It's because somebody, we don't know who, turns around and says, um, isn't this Joseph's son? I like to think it was one of Jesus' younger brothers that does this. Because I grew up in a home with two sisters. And I don't know what it was like in your home if you had brothers and sisters, but my sisters, God bless them, they were nasty. They were mean to me. Oh, poor Kevin. I was in trouble all the time. I was punished. I was spanked. Every disciplined thing that you could think of, I received. But I was innocent. It was my sister's who manipulated and lied and deceived. And then even when my parents would know they did it, it was like, yeah, but Kev, you should just know better. Go to your room. But, but, but. Okay, so maybe I read into this text because of my baggage. Maybe. But I think maybe this could be one of Jesus' brothers. Who do you think you are? You're just Joseph's son. You're nothing special. You're not divine. This promise that you say that you've come to fulfill, get over yourself. And then suddenly the crowd changes. So Jesus now has to address this. Because the people are saying, if you're truly this person, if you're truly this prophet, right? If you've truly been anointed by the Spirit of God to do this kind of ministry, if you're really this prophetic figure who's declaring the arrival of a new age, If you are really come to do what you just said, show me. And then Jesus goes into a story about how prophets are not welcomed in their own hometown. And then that's when people get mad. You see, the people get mad when Jesus calls out their unbelief. Jesus gets, so the crowd gets mad when Jesus calls out their sin. And This story, it's still the human condition. Like, how many of us love to be called out on our sin? We like church to be like this. We know we're going to sing three songs. We know we're going to read from the Bible. We know the sermon hopefully is not 55 minutes. It should be 45. It was a lot longer this morning. (laughs) Okay. But we like church the way we like it. And as soon as it deviates from our expectation, shoulders go up, the hearts get closed, and then someone calls out something that we're not expecting, and then there's rebellion. You see, Jesus came to do two things. We can actually summarize the entire ministry of Jesus with two words. Two words can summarize everything that Jesus has done. The two words are this, reconciliation and freedom. Reconciliation means Jesus has come to restore our relationship with God. He has come to reconcile fallen humanity to a God who loves them. That No synagogue service, no Baptist service, no Pentecostal service can help, can make us right before God. It is only the sacrifice of Jesus. See, God loves you. You ever hear that expression, God loves you but hates the sin? I don't think we explore that saying enough. God loves you but he has wrath and judgment against the sin. He despised the sin. It's horrid and yucky and terrible. But we don't receive wrath and judgment because of his love. And instead, that wrath and judgment is put on Jesus. 
And when we believe in Jesus, we are reconciled. That God doesn't see us as sinners. God doesn't see our sins as dirty rags. God sees us as white as snow. God sees us as saints. God sees us as his daughters, as his sons. Reconciliation. We talk a lot about reconciliation. The second part of Jesus' ministry that I believe we don't talk about enough, and this is why this message is so important, it's the most important message I could ever preach, is Jesus not only came to reconcile us with God, but Jesus came to give us freedom. True freedom from the powers of darkness. This is the promise of Isaiah, that he has come to set the captives free, to preach good news, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, to give the recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, is that Jesus has come to undo bondage. You see, you and I, in our Christian journey, in our Christian experience, we can experience reconciliation with God and still live lives of bondage, of trapped, of being stuck and not knowing what to do about it. And the message of Jesus is reconciliation and freedom. Reconciliation and freedom. It's not an end or it's not an or, it's a both. And so when Jesus declares this preaching and people say, well, no, but Jesus, I just want you to to show me the miracles. I just want to see the cool stuff. I want to see you, Jesus, walk on water. Jesus, I just want to see the transfiguration. Jesus, I just want you to make the good wine so we can party. Whatever the thing is we'd like to see, Jesus is saying, ultimately, that's not what's important. (laughs) Because Jesus came to set people free from their bondage, to get out of the comfort of the little Christianity, the little faith that we create, and to truly be set free from bondage. And when we forget this, when we forget that that is the ministry of Jesus, then the church begins to do something different. Christians waste their time doing something different. So what I want us to do is spend a little bit of time together looking at a whole bunch of scriptures. Again, I want you to see this in the Bible. I don't want you to just take my word for it. This is the Bible saying this. Okay? I want you to see where we stay in bondage and how the words of Jesus from Isaiah 61 are directly reflected in the New Testament as well. How you and I can stay in bondage. Right? The first way that we stay in bondage is we stay in prison. Right? All, for all of these passages, all of these points in Isaiah 61 that Jesus reads here in Luke 4, there's a physical truth and there's a spiritual truth. You see, in Jesus' day, and even in Isaiah's day, people would be falsely arrested. And they would be in prison falsely. And who is going to set that captive free? You didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do it. It was my sisters who did it. And why am I the one who's in trouble? It was her fault. There's a justice coming. Calm down, Kevin. You don't have to freak out. Who's going to set that captive free? So there's this prison. But then there's a spiritual side to it. The New Testament in Galatians chapter 3 teaches us that human beings are in prison of their sin. Galatians 3.22 says, The scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. See, we have sin in our lives that keep us living in a prison. The guilt of it, the shame of it, the embarrassment of it, or even for sometimes the pleasure and the want of it can keep us in a prison. I heard another preacher explain it like this. He said, imagine this bird cage, and there's this beautiful bird living in this bird cage. And the bird has lived all these years in the cage. And then someone comes and opens the door. And the bird spends the next 10 years just living in the cage. With the door wide open. The open air available. The beautiful forest available. Could soar over the ocean. All available. But 
stays in the prison. Sometimes self-imposed and sometimes imposed by others. Sometimes we believe the lies of the world, the lies of the enemy, but we stay in prison. Sin in my life and in your life has a way to keep us in prison of not experiencing this freedom, but the door is wide open that Jesus has come to proclaim freedom to the prisoner. If you are here today or if you're watching this online and you have put your faith in Jesus, the door of the birdcage is wide open. And you can sit in the cage for the rest of your Christian experience or you can step out of the cage. We stay in bondage when we stay in prison. Another way that we stay in bondage is when we stay in blindness. Right? Jesus continues and he says that he has come to give recovery of sight to the blind. Again, there's a physical promise here, Jesus healing the blind people. But there's a spiritual truth that plays out in this as well. Because sin keeps you and I blind. <laughs> Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, Satan, who is the god of this world, that means that Satan has been given temporary dominion over the world as the world has fallen and sinful. Satan is kind of in control temporarily. says, Satan, the god of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. So many times we live with blinders on. We don't see how our sin is keeping us far from God. We don't see how this sin is hurting the people that we love. We don't see, sometimes we don't even see it as sin. We just love the blinders. We just live these lives that are blind. And when we are spiritually blind, we don't go anywhere in our walk with God. Imagine for a moment you're blind and you're dropped in the middle of a forest. How many of you are going to start walking? If I was blind in a forest, I would sit down on the first stump I find and hope someone shows up to pull me out of the forest. <laughs> because what if I fall off a cliff? What if I run into a pack of wolves? What if? What if? What if? When we're spiritually blind, we sit <laughs> and we wait. And Jesus has come to give sight to the blind. <laughs> so we know where to walk. We know where to go. We know where to step. He has set us free from this blindness. And then finally, Jesus says that he has come. The other way that we experience bondage is when we stay under oppression. And this is the spiritual battle that the world is in right now. Like, if your life is anything like my life, you probably spend the vast majority of your life thinking about the physical. I do. I have bills to pay. I have work to do. I've got kids to drive around. I've got responsibilities to meet. I've got projects I've got to get done. I've got comic books to recategorize and put into new boxes. I've got Star Wars figures on shelves that I want to dust so they look really cool. I think it looks cool. Okay? We spend so much time thinking about the physical. But there's a spiritual world. And Scripture teaches there's a spiritual battle. And people ask me all the time about these spiritual things. They're like, oh, this Christian is possessed, and this Christian is influenced by Satan. And, and we're so a little all over the map on this topic. And do I believe Christians can be possessed and have demons in them? No. The Holy Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. You've been made clean. But can the weight of the attacks of the enemy weigh you down? Absolutely. <laughs> Can the lies of our spiritual enemy discourage us to the point where we take ourselves out of the game? Absolutely. We live under spiritual oppression as Christians. Right? And John, the Apostle John, writes about this in 1 John chapter 4. Right? He says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. Don't believe every voice, every single thing you read on YouTube. There's so much great stuff on YouTube. There's so much garbage. So much. I, I just stopped watching it. People do this all the time. Pastor, you need to see this video on YouTube. It's six and a half hours long and it will change your life. I'll pass. 
I'll just read my Bible, actually, thanks. Like, it's like, there's so much spiritual garbage. And we live under oppression of this. So we put ourselves in bondage of prisons, of blindness, of oppressions. But the big idea is Jesus sets us free from this. So how? How do we experience freedom? Because Jesus has come to undo bondage. So very quickly, just three things, again, from the scriptures, not my opinion. This is how Jesus taught that we experience freedom, how we escape bondage. The first thing that you need to do is this, is you need to believe the good news. You need to truly believe the good news. When John wrote, in John chapter 3, verse 16, when he wrote down these words, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There isn't a little asterisk beside that that says, or if you believe something else. Or if something else works for you. And when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, nobody comes to God the Father except through me. This isn't a one of many options. And I have sat down with non-Christian friends over lunch, and I had a conversation probably about a year and a half ago with someone on exactly this topic. He's like, Kev... Like, I get what you believe, but it sounds so limiting and it sounds so restrictive on how people get to God. I said, well, if you look at it that way, you're right. It is very limiting how we get to God. It's only through Jesus. But if you look at how people come to Jesus, there are 7 billion different ways that people come to Jesus. Everyone in this room and everyone online has come to Jesus in a different way. No two stories are the same. Because you are unique, and God's relationship to you is unique. All of us come to Jesus in a certain way, whether it was through a small group, whether when we were kids in kids' ministry, a teenager at Bible camp, an adult reading the Bible on the way to work. We all have different stories, seven billion different ways to come to Jesus. But we need to believe this. We're getting a little wishy-washy, not us, but the church, the Canadian church, getting a little wishy-washy on, eh, do you have to believe this? Can I be a minister and be an atheist? I would have said no, but other people say it seems to be okay. We're getting a little wishy-washy. It starts by believing the good news because no one else has come to set the captive free. No one else. No other spiritual leader has claimed to come and set the captive free. No one. Moses didn't claim it. Muhammad didn't claim it. Buddha didn't claim it. No one else has claimed that they have come to set the captive free. Only Jesus is the only one who makes those words. So we've got to believe it. The second thing we need to do is then we need to cling to truth. And when I say cling to truth, what I mean is this. <laughs> we cling to the word of God as truth. Again, it's too easy to read the Bible and say, eh, eh, doesn't align, eh, I don't like that one, so I'll rip that page out. We don't actually rip the pages out, but we kind of do. We might as well, because we don't think they're important. (laughs) And we go, well, that was for then, that's not for now, and all of that. And we kind of just let ourselves believe whatever the flavor of spirituality is of the month, (laughs) right? And Paul talks about that to the church in Ephesus. He says in Ephesians 4, he says, If you would cling to the truth, stop believing every spiritual thing you hear. If you would cling to the truth of God's word, he says, Then you will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful ways. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. <laughs> and I'll let you in on a little secret. You know the guys who are making these YouTube videos? They get money when you watch it. And the more people who watch it, the more money they make. So if they can make something that's wackadoo and get 17 billion people to watch it, 
They make a lot of money. And then we go, oh, yeah, that's, that's a new truth. Oh, yeah, that's a new truth. Oh, that's a new And then this person gets arrested. Okay, never mind. This is a new truth. This is the truth. If you can't see it in here, it's not in here. This whole, you need the pastor to reveal the hidden message of the word of God. No! That's why we had the Reformation 500 years ago. You don't need a holy man to point out something that you can't see yourself. Cling to it. Study it, read it, meditate on it, and wrestle with it. Jesus has no problem with you wrestling with this. He has a problem when we ignore it. So first, we have to believe the good news. We have to cling to truth. And then finally, if you truly want to experience freedom, we have to live lives in submission to Jesus. We have to live lives in submission to Jesus. James chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. So much in our culture today says, oh, God just wants to ruin your fun and God is all restrictive and he doesn't want you to experience have a good life. And oh, what was you? I have friends, I have family who go, oh man, Kevin sucks to be you. You know, you don't get to sleep around. You haven't had multiple partners. You've only just had your wife. Oh, sucks to be you. There's nothing that sucks about my marriage. It's incredible. It's awesome. And we believe the lies and the falsehoods and the this and the that, and we think for some reason submission is a bad thing. I remember when I was learning about tithing, okay, just as an example, right? And I was trying to build out my life. I've shared this before. I was a materialist. And the whole concept of giving away 10% of my income, do you know how many comic books and Star Wars figures I can buy with 10% of my income? Two. I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. But a lot. I could treat myself to a lot of toys. The most freeing thing I ever did in my life was tithe. The most freeing thing I've ever done in my life is tithe, is to get rid of the love of money, to be set free from that, to live on budget. <laughs> And things like that. And we're still working through it to get to that place where we can be even more generous and even more generous. I believe there's even more freedom in that. That's just one example of living a life of submission. So if Jesus is calling you and challenging you in certain areas of your life, are you ignoring it or are you submitting to it? You'll never experience the freedom that God has for you if you're living in rebellion. He wants us to live in freedom. Jesus has come to set us free from bondage. He's come to undo bondage. He's come to set us free from the prisons. He's come to set us free from our blindness. He's come to set us free from oppression. And the beauty about God is he loves you so much. He has provided all the ways for you to experience freedom. But he loves you so much, he'll even let you stay in your bondage. He's a gentleman. He'll let you sit there. He'll constantly bring ways to help you get out. He'll constantly provide ways to get out of temptation. He'll constantly bring people into your life. But he'll let you stay in bondage. And a faith that is stuck in bondage is a faith with no power, with no authority, with very little spiritual fruit in our lives. Jesus has come to make us right before God and to set the captive free. That's me and that's you. That's what Jesus wants to undo for all of us. Let's pray. Father, I pray uh, for forgiveness for the times in my life when I have been a short-sighted man where I have enjoyed the prison, where I've enjoyed the blindness, where I even didn't even recognize the oppression and lived a faith that was not the way you would have had me live. God, we are grateful for your word, how it speaks to us, how it challenges us, how it opens our eyes. And I pray that today, Lord, 
all of our eyes have been opened a little bit more to the ministry of Jesus and what he has come to do. That he has come to reconcile us before you, Father. And he has come to set us free from the power of sin and death in the world. Father, I pray for those that might be here who are struggling, feeling like they're in a prison, feeling like they're spiritually blind, feeling that spiritual oppression in their lives. And I pray that even today, this truth of the ministry Jesus would be fulfilled in their hearing today and that you would set the captives free. I pray for the person who might be here in this room or the person watching online who knows of God but has never given their heart to God. Maybe they believe in God, but this Jesus thing is new. I just want you to know how much God loves you, if that's you today. I just want you to know that you're not hearing this by accident. God wants you to know that you can have freedom from the lies of the world, that you can be made new, that you can be made right before God. And it's not by keeping the religious rules. It's not by going to church. But it's simply by believing the good news of Jesus. That he died for you. And the Bible says you can receive that real easily. You just have to believe in your heart that Jesus died for you and he rose from the dead. And then you need to just confess that with your mouth. Tell the person who brought you. Come and tell me in the cafe. Send me an email. Just confess that publicly to someone. The Bible says you'll be made new. And then we begin that journey. For those who maybe have been feeling stuck in their faith, it might be because you're in bondage. And I pray that you would find freedom in your life group for the people who are walking with you. We have so many resources of the church. We want you to experience the freedom that is only available in Jesus. He truly wants more for us than we even want for ourselves. We're going to collect our tithes and our offerings now. This is just part of our worship. If you're joining us online, you can give by clicking the give button. Or if you're a guest with us, please don't feel obligated to give unless God puts it on your heart. But let me pray for our offering and for our continued time of worship. Lord, I praise you and thank you for the generosity of your children. I thank you for this generosity that is uh, allowing the good news to be proclaimed across our city, across our nation, and around the world. I pray that you would use these gifts in a wonderful way, that you would multiply them, and that you would be glorified. And Holy Spirit, as we continue to worship, I pray that the truth of our freedom would be made new and alive in our lives as we seek you daily. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.